the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. 602-508-0960. As we always do in our third hour on Tuesdays is we uh, bring in Hugh and Lewis Hallman. I had my pronouns. I guess pronouns are a big thing now. But I had my <laughs> – you can identify your pronouns when you write to the White House and that sort of thing now. That's that's new. Well, and according to one school district's efforts yes. to enforce Black yes. Lives Matter's yes. principles, that yeah. uh, one should get to do that beginning in kindergarten. Kindergarten, exactly right. Uh, so I had my pronouns wrong here. Uh, we don't have both Hallmans here today. Today we just have um, Hugh Hallman. Hugh is, of course, the former mayor of Tempe. He is an educator. He is an attorney. And he is uh, our resident um, – not a. <laughs> you're. Uh, what, what, what are you? You are a resident. Well, I'm a has been. I'm both. No, 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 you're no, not. You're you, not. You, you're. You're. you're, you're the, the, Anna, we're, we're, uh, we already owe Lewis an apology for the fact that uh, between the two of us, we excoriated him for uh, believing that only centripetal force was a real uh, physical force, and uh, we were arguing that centrifugal force or centrifugal force, if you prefer, uh, was a real force. And not only did Lewis uh, give me a seven-page paper explaining why I'm a moron. A listener did, too. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, but we also received something. So thank you to the listener for taking it seriously. And Lewis is not here with us today because he was so ill from all of the extra research he had to do regarding centripetal versus centrifugal force that he he decided to take the day off, the lazy kid. The Phoenix Business Journal tells us COVID-19 is on the verge of becoming the leading cause of death. Epistemologist, I needed. That's what I was looking for. Our resident epistemologist. The Phoenix Business Journal is reporting that COVID-19 is on the verge of becoming the leading cause of death in Arizona, surpassing cancer and closing in on heart disease. Well, actually, the story says it is a leading killer, except that they, uh, the, the young reporter from uh, Cronkite News, uh, as yep. uh, picked mm-hmm. up by the uh, Phoenix Business Journal, uh-huh. um, was using 2018 data for cancer and heart attack and other such things. And it was just a couple of weeks ago that we looked at the nationwide data. I did not pull the data uh, for Arizona specifically on what had happened in 2020 with heart attack. And currently, at, uh, at the time we were looking at the numbers, it was a couple of weeks ago, we, were, we had just pushed 400,000 COVID deaths. Nationally. Nationally. Yeah. And in uh, the country, we were over 600,000 heart attacks uh, or other cardiovascular disease deaths. And so this story really has to have a big footnote to it because – uh, the young person who did this story did not really go back and try to do the research. The data is available to the CDC. It's, it keeps getting moved around. It's very hard to track why the CDC is hiding data that's counter-narrative. Can't imagine it. Uh, but at this stage, the reality is that we're now seeing not only other kinds of diseases increasing in uh, their mortality and lethality, uh, but we certainly know that because we've focused so much of our attention on COVID-19, we have increases in suicide, increases in drug addiction and, and alcoholism, increases 
in heart attack, untreated cancer, other kinds of diseases. Doublings of youth suicide. Yeah, literally, doubling of youth suicide should be should be a cause of grave concern. And to steal something from Lewis uh, a few shows ago, he talked about the idea that we needed to have a conversation to uh, properly weigh those who were getting the benefits from all of our efforts from those who were paying all of the costs. And currently, uh, in the in the progressive era, we are supposed to close our schools and keep our kids at home, causing all kinds of unintended consequences. If one values life the way most uh, insurance companies do, you look at the age of a person and see how much longer they were to live. That's also the way our legal system does it. And if somebody is 85 and was expected to live another six months but passed away from COVID-19, uh, and you compare that to a 16-year-old who committed suicide as a result of being locked down, those are different lives to value, that the 16-year-old was likely to have lived another 80 years, while the 85-year-old was likely to have lived another six months or so. Uh, that is not to say we're sitting here as the Grim Reapers choosing among people, but that is exactly what's going on. Oh, it's a good question to ask what price an 18-year-old should pay to save the life of an 85-year-old. I think it's a fair question. It is an absolutely fair and when question. When you have 81,000 drug overdose deaths in the United States last year, halfway through the year, that's the highest number we've ever had in this country, halfway through the year. Those aren't 85-year-olds. That's correct. And so we are merely pleading to allow the conversation to take place, that the cancel culture stop ending these kinds of conversations because they're really important to have. That And there has now been one study that we've found where the economists, it's a, it's a, it's a study uh, really looking at mortality rates, uh, looking at the number of lives lost based on a year averaging. So you take a typical life of, and I'm going to make a number up, 80 years old, if that's the typical life, if you're losing people who are 85 and above, which is the primary, the largest group here, we certainly know that 65 and over accounts for more, almost 80 percent of all deaths here. Again, we're not trying to say that it's time for grandma to, to uh, take an overdose and get her off uh, on the ice floe here. That's not the point. We do, however, need to have the conversation. It was the greatest generation who is now passing from among us who walked into German uh, machine gun nests facing certain death. And this generation is now locking itself at home, uh, trying to protect itself from inconvenience in many instances. Yes, it is true. Some people are dying. That is, we're not minimizing that. But we know who is the likeliest to die and who is not. Comorbidities in younger people and older people, uh, age 65 and over, and primarily age 75 and over. We know what to do. Why do we continue to punish young people and say they can't go to schools? And Seth, last hour, you did a brilliant job talking about teachers having shrugged, that Atlas shrugged, uh, Ayn Rand's uh, effort to explain if all of the people who were capable and able to uh, create and give us the opportunity to uh, move forward in history quit, what would happen? And we do know that teachers, those in the current environment, shrugged. They've said, no, we're not going to teach in this environment. And the challenge they face is that parents have been finding alternatives. And that has been going on for 30 years. Charter schools are open. Private schools are open. And the 
the political battle is to stop those people from providing an alternative to educating children and doing so in a way that undermines the union position that only traditional public schools are appropriate for educating our children. And, oh, by the way, those teachers aren't going to show up now. Chicago seems to be ground zero of this debate right now. And one of the parents, God bless them, said students in over 130 private and parochial schools and over 2,000 early learning centers across the city have been safely learning in their classrooms since the fall. Imagine that. Students in over 130 private and parochial schools and over 2,000 early learning centers across the city have been safely learning in their classrooms since the fall. And now, only after Donald Trump has been forced from office, do we have the CDC officially putting out in the last day or so uh, that it is now possible to open schools safely. As soon as possible. As soon as possible, if only certain precautions are taken. taken. And so the CDC... And not uh, that bad. Mask wearing and social distancing, that which everyone has been doing for eight months. That is correct. And and those schools that are open, and we've often advocated on this show that what one should do is, to the extent you've got teachers who have comorbidities, they can teach into the classroom by wire. And to the extent you have students who are either at risk or whose families might be at risk if they were to pick up the disease, footnote, we also know from studies that students are not uh, vectors and not very good carriers of the disease, that they don't spread it very easily any more than they get it very easily. And as a result, we can understand that we can take those precautions. People can make those choices, but they should not be making those choices for every other person's child. That's right. And I have to go back to the point as we close out this segment that I opened with, if it's okay, because I don't. I really want to highlight it. These stories that you're seeing that COVID deaths will surpass every other cause of death in Arizona or the United States is just not possibly true. It just won't bear out to be possibly true. In using 2018 data, they found that heart disease took 12,410 Arizonans. That was when people were not delaying access to hospitals. They were not delaying access to critical care. They were not delaying treatments for heart disease. They were not delaying investigations and examinations for heart disease and with a smaller population. That is the number two day of COVID deaths in Arizona. It will not be the number one killer in Arizona. It just will not be. I I agree with you, and we have to come back and talk about the fact that we continue to use a different protocol in the United States than other countries are using to punish ourselves for our failure to respond properly to COVID uh, from the first days. Perfect. We'll do it when we come right back. We will be right back. 602-508-0960. I got, distra- I got distracted by a historical reference Hugh Hallman was leading me to. Uh, we'll take your calls in just a moment. Uh, Hugh, did I step on something you wanted to bring up or underscore? It was an issue. Was it with schools or hospitals? I'm sorry. Well, s- still with both schools and hospitals. Okay. We've shut down schools because, of course, the uh, somebody in Europe decided that was a good idea based on a silly proposal that came out of a uh, freshman high school program, uh, the GLASS study. That was a nonsense study that the Brits then picked up and everybody followed it until uh, some people in Europe decided it was stupid. And in fact, we now know it's stupid. Why do we know this? Because finally the CDC is saying, gee whiz, we ought to reopen schools. Our own governor 
refuse to follow the demands of our state superintendent of public instruction, Ms. Hoffman, to close our schools again. We have to protect our children and close our schools, she said. And the governor said, no, that is a that is a local decision. I'm going to continue to push authority down to the local level and let school boards and teachers and principals decide. Well, we've talked about the fact that charter schools and private schools opened. Many public schools did as well. You've got a lawsuit in Flagstaff for their failure and refusal to open. And our governor is not getting nearly enough credit, particularly by colleagues in the Republican Party, who under, who don't understand the pressure he has been under to refuse to use government authority a second time. He learned his lesson after the first time and has refused. And now we've got hospitals. Before you do hospitals, up. before you Please. do hospitals, can I just bookmark that for a second? Of because I had a teacher write me during the break. And she's absolutely right, because Arizona actually has done a lighter touch on schools, though some are still closed, many are still close than other states where it is uh, the entire state's uh, public school system. And she wrote me not uh, something I don't think you and I have said, but maybe we didn't emphasize clearly enough. It is not all schools in Arizona. Um, certainly not all charters. Most of them are open. Certainly not all private. Most of them are open. And some public are. She says, I want you to hear one piece of positive news about a public school I teach at, eight K through 8. We have been open since August. 100% of our teaching staff wanted in-person teaching wow. and learning. Almost all students return to the classroom. It's in Maricopa County, small outside of town. Our low class size allows us to easily follow all the required guidelines. Our administrator sends us the state reports every week that show us in the red. And we are sent surveys about whether we want to continue teaching in person. And we are still here. We didn't shrug. And we say the Pledge of Allegiance every day. Warms my heart. Mine as well. And God bless. in a, in a uh, argument or discussion I had uh, through the Arizona Business the, the, and Education the, the, Coalition, yeah, go ahead. Uh, we talked about the fact that the difference of schools that have successfully opened and kept the teachers on uh, the campus right. teaching right. is the leadership. Right. The that actual if you have a decent yep. principal who can rally the troops just as Patton might rally people into battle, just as Teddy Roosevelt rallied troops up San Juan Hill. This is a crisis that required real leadership. And those parents whose children are in classrooms like this teacher just described need to go thank a principal. Because that's somebody who's dedicated themselves to, to educating kids. They make okay money, but not the kind of money they would make without those kinds of leadership skills in, private, in the private sector. That's right. And I'm an example of that. My salary as the headmaster and headmasters of schools uh, for Tempe Preparatory Academies uh, was all of $60,000. My wife kept shaking her head at me why on earth I would do that. Well, you know, taking one-tenth of what I could make in a year made a difference to thousands of kids. And I got to prove that great schools can occur and great teaching and Great results for kids. We became the 15th best school in the country, according to U.S. News & World Report. Not bad. We can have that happen without spending tens of millions of dollars on facilities. It takes great leadership in the school and great teachers in the classroom eager to teach kids with parents at least not throwing sticks into the spokes. And that's what it takes. And congratulations to that listener, that teacher, and congratulations to the principal of that school for being able to marshal the troops to go into battle on a daily basis and keep teaching. That's really remarkable. And and a a word to the parents, too, for being willing to 
take those risks. Well, as we now know, the CDC has even reversed itself, and uh, as has the New York Times, saying, gee whiz, uh, maybe now it's safe to go back into the water since Joe Biden is president and we can open schools. I bookmarked hospitals, you were about to say. So we're about to say. So here we have a letter uh, to the governor dated January 20th, 2021. Signed by the the uh, host of all hosts, uh, the CFOs and CEOs of most of our hospitals in the state. And what are they urging? That the governor undertake even more activities uh, to assure that the spread of the disease is slowed. And what do they cite? Things like, here it is, January 20th in the letter, as our hospitalizations continue to rise. So the premise of the letter is entirely false. The the hospitalizations began to fall in the prior week and have continued to fall. Uh, it's not that we're hoping that hospitals are overwhelmed, but currently they're running at approximately 90 percent capacity. Well, what do hospitals try to run at between 80 and 90 percent capacity? Why? Because hospitals are like hotels. If a bed is empty, you're losing money. Behinds in beds are the way you keep your hospital open, for-profit or non-profit. You've got to have enough people in the building being served to keep the wheels turning. And for hospitals to continue to use this pandemic as if 80 to 90 percent capacity utilization is something untoward, well, then they're going to have to live with people like me screaming that they better then start adding more empty beds and suffering the consequences of the cost of their bottom line so that Peter Fine getting his very large salary is now going to have to explain why he's not making enough money and keeping the doors open as he's got to have excess capacity sitting there uselessly. There's one really other important data point to what you just said because it's easy to misread from the headlines or misunderstand from the headlines when we are told 90% hospital capacity. That is not 90% COVID. Right. As the Arizona Republic likes to report it, 90% COVID and other things. It's about 50% COVID. Well, it's uh, currently, it's running... It just went down uh, to about 55%. ICU beds are at 57%. uh, IP beds, rather than regular inpatient beds, are at 49% COVID. Now, keeping in mind, we've discussed this before, and I know it gets a little boring, but let's all remember, class, that... Hospitals are now testing everyone. So anybody coming in for a knee replacement or a hip uh, fracture is tested. And if they test positive for COVID, they're a COVID patient. They happen to be a patient with COVID, not a COVID patient. And in the early days, we had people coming in who were sick with COVID. The hospitals are still not providing data that would help us better understand what proportion of their patients are actually being serviced because they have symptoms from COVID that require hospitalization, as opposed to symptoms from other things or other reasons that they're in the hospital and they also tested positive for COVID. It's exactly the reason we have bad data on death, because the U.S. now says if you tested positive for COVID in the last 60 days and then you died, that's a COVID death. That's not what other countries are doing, and we're sitting around self-flagellation uh, to make sure that we all understand how terrible the United States is because we have such a greater propensity to death from COVID. Nonsense. Nicely put. We'll be right back. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We had a caller on f- someone about Milton Friedman. Call back. We wanted to talk about that, too. We'll be right back. So Hugh Hallman, who is also, among other things, my running partner and knows um, well 
my dog Dagny, he said to me, I guess I never put it together that she was named after the lead character or the lead uh, protagonist in um, Atlas Shrugged, Dagny Taggart. And she sort of is. That was the idea for the name of Dagny, but it was also just a perfect name. When I read the name Dagny, I thought that is a perfect dog's name. It's two syllables, ends in a vowel, and it's a great name for a dog. And she's kind of a libertarian. It was a lovely name for a character. Yeah, yeah. Better for a dog, though. Yes, the heiress to a a railroad empire who understood that uh, it still required that she apply her mind to retaining the ability to run an air, uh, run a railroad. Yeah. And in fact, we know pretty clearly that uh, uh, I think as you were discussing that there are great minds that are being uh, destroyed because the new mindset in progressivism is you didn't earn that. You didn't build that. Uh, the government did. Should we do the Milton Friedman? I think Milton Friedman so is We had great. a caller on hold and I guess he had to run um, and that's okay. But he said... What would have inspired him? Maybe that Reagan thing. I think absolutely that Reagan audio inspired it, it, it him. Took, uh, it took uh, Ronald Reagan in politics, yeah. and it took Milton Friedman in economics yeah. to create the great result we got beginning in 1981 with this country launching off the rocket uh, pad after a bummer 15 or 20 years and turning the country into massive success. Yeah, that's exactly – that's well put. So we had a caller who said play – Milton Friedman on Donahue in 1979. Well, that was an hour-long show, probably 45 minutes worth of content. But we will give you this. We will give you an excerpt. This was the great mind of Milton Friedman. So quick, so quick, with Phil Donahue, 1979. Go ahead. When you see around the globe the maldistribution of wealth, the the desperate plight of millions of people in underdeveloped countries, uh, when you see so few haves and so many have-nots, when you, when you see the greed and the concentration of power within, don't, aren't you ever, did you ever have a moment of doubt about capitalism and whether greed's a good idea to run on? Well, first of all, tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? You think Russia doesn't run on greed? You think China doesn't run on greed? What is greed? Of course, none of us are greedy. It's only the other fellow who's greedy. <laughs> this, the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. Einstein didn't construct his theory under order from a, from a, a bureaucrat. Henry Ford didn't revolutionize the automobile industry that way. In the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty you're talking about, the only cases in recorded history are where they, where they have had capitalism and largely free trade. If you want to know where the masses are worse, worse off, worst off, it's exactly in the kinds of societies that depart from that. So that the record of history is absolutely crystal clear that there is no alternative way so far discovered of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by a free enterprise system. But it seems to reward not virtue as much as ability to manipulate the system. Uh, and what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You think a Hitler rewards virtue? You think, excuse me, if you'll pardon me, do you think American presidents reward virtue? Do they choose their appointees on the basis of the virtue of the people appointed or on the basis of their political clout? Is it really true that political self-interest is nobler somehow than economic self-interest? 
You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. And just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. Well, I don't even trust you to do that. <laughs> the great Milton Friedman reminds me of uh, what I was saying in my uh, monologue, uh, quoting Harry Jaffa on Lincoln. The origin of, all, origin of all constitutional rights was the right that a man had to own himself and therefore to own the product of his own labor. Government exists to protect that right and to regulate property only to make it more valuable to its possessors. Any party that believes in sinecures or slavery is a party that wants to use political power to tax us not for common good, but so that they can eat while we work, which was Lincoln's definition of slavery. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. In the mood. Yeah, I'm Doc in the mood Simmons. for some really good stuff. Yeah, isn't that great? In the mood. Hugh Holman, you wanted to make a point built off what uh, Milton Friedman was talking about when he was talking about self-interest, political self-interest and economic self-interest. Well, yes? in, in fact, uh, Milton Friedman is really painting the picture of two political parties. The Republican Party gets blamed for being about greed and, and uh, profit-making and, and helping businesses. And that is the essence of the notion of economic self-interest and the idea that individuals are free to do as they might as long as they don't interfere with other people's right to do the same. So it's a rather libertarian notion. Well, Adam Smith was describing this in his great work, Wealth of Nations. Do you know when that was published? Yeah, at the time of our founding. March 9th, 1776. Yep. That was what was in the minds of the people who put together ultimately the Constitution in uh, 1783 that really embodies the notions that individuals are not to be slaves to someone else. And that is that notion of economic self-interest. Well, the the those who are now making up what is the uh, progressive party think that political self-interest should rule us. And that means that people are going to use the political systems that have been created, not through their own efforts, but through structures that have been created in government and then cobbled together in later years. Unfortunately, we've amended our Constitution enough times to, tr to add power to the very authority that our founders were trying to keep weaker, the federal government, that it should only have a certain area of interest that it could govern and everything else would fall to the states or the people themselves. And as that federal government has gotten increasing power, defined powers was what that's Madison called it. correct. Right. And as that federal government has gotten increasingly powerful, we are now running straight into the question that Milton Friedman asked at the end of that commentary. Where are we going to find these angels to now exercise these levers of government in our interests? They're not going to lever uh, those uh, use that leverage for our interests. It's for their own interests, and that's the human condition. Mm -hmm. And Madison wrote that ultimately in Federalist Ten, saying, as really noticed and and kind of hinted at there by Milton Friedman, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, 
The great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. And we are slowly but surely eliminating the constraints that Madison built into our Constitution to assure that government wouldn't become so powerful that political interest would now drive our society. And if you want to have the frightening notion of what I mean by that, think about what that government interest does. It now is going to be the source of allocating scarce resources among our society. We see that already. Taxation is pulled from one group and distributed to another group, depending on the power of the vote. Well, now we have some real specific example. And since our job here every Tuesday at five is to talk about COVID, I'm going to draw it back, the political analysis. We have a very scarce resource at the moment. It's the vaccine for COVID-19. And it is being distributed around this country. And there was a pretty easy notion originally. Let's get it to first responders who are out on the street working to deal with COVID. Get it to nurses and doctors and people facing the disease themselves who are helping the rest of us through this process. And then let's get it to old people. That's the people who are most at risk. Those who are in congregate centers and now teachers, perhaps police officers. Well, now who's next? Well, I'll tell you who's next. Whoever can marshal the political power to get to be next on the list. So the most stunning, and I am one are these, I am a lawyer. I practice law in the state of Arizona, a great bar association that creates a monopoly to make sure that the money I can charge is higher than it might otherwise be. And the state bar association sent out a letter to make sure everybody knew that lawyers from the state bar association the Board of Governors, dear state bar members, you may be wondering if you are, uh, are considered an essential service provider qualifying for phase 1B prioritization to receive the COVID-19 vas- vaccine. You are. Why are you? Because your bar association and the other lobbyists on behalf of lawyers are pushing the levers of government to make sure that lawyers are above 75-year-olds. If you're in a congregate facility, you're first up. But after that, the lawyers. Well, we had a, uh, a congressman who once said, kill all the lawyers first. And in fact, uh, he was taking that from uh, Shakespeare. In this instance, are there some lawyers who probably ought to get the vaccine early on? Yeah, there are lawyers who are now serving us with pretty crappy circumstances in courtrooms filled with uh, criminals who deserve to be represented. They're going into jails where there are closed confinements and other kinds of risks that they are taking to serve other people in a way that our society requires. But how many transactions lawyers out there really need to get the vaccine when what they're doing is documenting bank loans or hotel contracts or like me, uh, working to uh, create uh, hotel and uh, residential projects. I'm sorry. I think this is absurd. But what it points out to me is that that government power is now going to use the political self-interest to provide scarce resources to the people who can push the levers of power more ably. And that is what this society is risking becoming. It is risking becoming like so many others where it's not what you do and what you know. It's who you know that matters. Yeah, that leads us to another kind of provision that we got out of the Federalist Papers in Madison. Let me come back with that on the other side. Actually, we're going to go into a closing. You know what I want us to do on the closing? You had a brilliant insight 
about the challenge Biden should be held to, the standard he should be held to with vaccinations. Will you close with that? I would love to. That would to. be great. That's, an impo- that's a more important thing. We can do Madison more tomorrow. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Hughes Hallman. Don't go away. You'll love this point. It's really, really good. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. If you didn't get on, I apologize. If you are uh, on hold, give us a call tomorrow. We'll put you right at the top, I promise you. Uh, Hugh had a really interesting point. Joe Biden said things are going to get worse before they get better after last week saying that there is no way we will be able to change the trajectory of the coronavirus over the next several months. This is not what he said on the campaign trail. Um, Hugh, tell us what the vaccine standards should be. Well, more recently still, since he's been inaugurated, the president explained that he was going to roll out 100 million uh, vaccinations in his first 100 days. He was actually asked, well, why set the standards so low? Let's put that into context. Uh, The new Biden administration is uh, regaling with stories about how terrible the Trump administration's efforts were to roll out the vaccine. First, of course, they get little to no credit for actually moving the systems uh, of medicine fast enough and science fast enough that within 10 months we ended up with a vaccine. On December 11th, uh, 2020, the FDA stamped its uh, stamp of approval on the Pfizer vaccine and we began rolling it out. The United States began rolling it out. That was only 40 days before President uh, President Biden was inaugurated. So I think the proper standard to determine uh, the success or failure of the Biden administration, especially with respect to COVID-19, is they've got 40 days. They said that they could do better. Let's see it. 40 days started on January 20th. Tick tock, tick tock. Oh, it's a great point. They're lambasting the Trump administration for not doing in 40 days what they actually are promising to do over the next 100 days. Let's see how they do. We'll see how they do. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Until next, uh, well, until next week, we won't see you, Hugh. I'll see you for our traditional run uh, later this week, and I will see the rest of you in the audience tomorrow. Until then, God bless you, and class dismissed.